Mark wants us to see the ruler of the synagogue falling at the feet of the son of a Jewish carpenter. So beginning from verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around at who had done it, or he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So the first thing that we notice in this passage is an immediate change in context. The context changes in such a way that Jesus leaves the shore which he was asked to leave after ridding this community of such a problem as this demonized man who would harass people attacked people who were passing by. He lived naked in the tombs and shrieking and screaming. Just such a problem for the area and a problem for the community. Jesus rids the community of this problem, not to say anything of ridding the man of his problem, of the demons that possessed him, and then instead making him a child of God. He leaves the context of being asked to leave from the shores of this area on the other side of Galilee. Now he crosses back again, two times within the span of two days, over the Sea of Galilee, back to the near side, back to Capernaum. And as he arrives here at the shores of Capernaum, once again, the context changes from one in which he's asked to leave to one in which he was welcomed. In fact, welcomed welcomed enthusiastically. If we were to read in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 8 and verse 40, we read this, that when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So that speaks quite a lot about what has happened since Jesus left. Jesus apparently left on the evening a day and a half prior, and he goes over to the other side, and apparently not all the crowd dispersed, but some of the crowd remained there on the beach watching and waiting for Jesus to come back. And now he's come back, the crowd immediately forms again, and it's this enthusiastic, welcoming type of crowd. So it's quite a difference from what he experienced on the other side of the sea. But one of the things that we've made note of consistently throughout Mark's gospel, and it's not something that's intuitive, it's something that we need to pay attention to see, but it's this, that though Jesus is flocked by many, many people, 
And this is now just the reality of his life. His daily life faces the reality of being thronged and flocked by mobs of people, even though this is the reality. Nonetheless, the vast majority of all these people are not believers in Jesus in any way other than to believe in him as some sort of miracle worker or interesting teacher or item of curiosity. We've seen again and again that the crowds flock around him and the vast amount of these crowds are soil that's thorny soil or hard soil or shallow soil. They may have a lot of interest in Jesus. They may desire his healings and even be attentive to his teachings, but they are not believers in him in any way. And one of the ways that we know this for certain is when we turn to example, Matthew chapter 11, and we read Jesus's words speaking of this very area. So bear in mind, Jesus has returned to the main area of Capernaum. And we said Jesus is going to spend most of his time here in and around Capernaum. So speaking of Capernaum, Jesus says in Matthew 11, and you Capernaum will be exalted to heaven. No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would remain to this day. So the mighty works done in Capernaum, Jesus has done and continues to do many mighty works in Capernaum. But in Jesus's own words, these mighty works that he's doing in Capernaum are not producing in the context of Matthew 11. They are not producing repentance. And as we've said before, repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other. And so as Jesus condemns them for failing to repent, he's likewise also condemning them for failing to believe. So these throngs and throngs of of people that are flocking around him, we we have been careful not to mistake this as a large showing of people who believe in Jesus and are followers of Jesus. Rather, we have seen again and again that the great majority of people will reject him. In fact, let's just think back just briefly over the last, oh, I don't know, half of a chapter. Back in chapter 5, as Jesus is on the other side of the sea, what does Jesus do? He provides restoration for one whom no one else could restore. And in return for restoring this man, he's asked to leave. He provides restoration, restores the community back to peace, restores this man back to humanity, gives him eternal life, and in exchange, he's asked to leave. In the following story, as Jesus goes to Jairus' house, he is going to provide not only restoration, he's going to provide resurrection. He's going to raise back to life, not just any girl, but the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. We'll talk about that as we go through. But the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, he's going to raise back to life. And what does Jesus receive? Laughter. They mock him. In the next chapter, chapter 6 and verse 3, Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And in verse 3 of chapter 6, we're told that many there took offense at him. In other words, they were offended by Jesus. They found Jesus and his words offensive. And that pretty much sums up the great majority of the reaction to Jesus. He's asked to leave. He's laughed at and mocked. And he is the cause of offense. Let me just ask the question, is Mark writing about first century Israel or is Mark writing about 21st century America? It's stunning, isn't it? How much things can change and yet things just stay the same. The vast majority of Jesus's reaction or the reaction to Jesus, I should say, 
The vast majority of that reaction to Jesus can be summarized with the three reactions of asking him to leave, mocking him, and being offended by him. And this is the reaction that Jesus receives by the great, great majority. Again, just to return our thoughts briefly to the parable of the soils and how three of the four soils provide no crop whatsoever. Jesus is experiencing this firsthand as he travels through such thronging crowds. So we take a turn now. This, from this point in Mark's gospel, a ch- really we could go back to the previous story and see a change take place. You have heard me say since the beginning of Mark's gospel that Mark presents the crowds not as something positive, but as something very much negative. Mark is not enthusiastic about the crowds, and he does not present the crowds as something that's helping Jesus. Rather, he presents the crowds as a hindrance to Jesus. Now, that's not been so plain up until now. And in fact, some may have wondered, is that really the way that we should understand the crowds in Mark's gospel? Sure, there's a lot of people that don't believe, but they sure are enthusiastic. However, beginning from this point to the end of the gospel, the crowds will be displayed by Mark clearly and plainly as something very much negative, as a hindrance to Jesus, as something that prevents him or at least seeks to prevent him from doing what he seeks to do. We really could have seen that with the crowd on the other side in the region of the Gerasenes, but that was a Gentile crowd. In earnest, it begins now as Jesus steps back ashore and the crowds once again are bigger than ever. They're described later on in verse, I think, 23 or 24 as thronging Jesus. Luke uses the word that means to literally choke Jesus. The crowds are bigger and more aggressive than ever. And Jesus steps out of the boat into such a context. From verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, as we, as we saw earlier, Luke says that at least some of that crowd had been waiting for him on the shore, watching out across the water, looking for that little flotilla of boats that held the called out ones of Jesus and Jesus himself. They've been watching the water, waiting for these boats to return. Now they finally see them come back over the horizon. And as they come up to the shore, they flock about him once again. And word spreads quickly. The remainder of the crowd is here once again in just what seems like a few moments. And a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Now verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. So here we introduce to this man Jairus. We typically say Jairus. But it's a closer pronunciation would be Jairus. In fact, if we wanted to be authentic in our pronunciation, remember how we've said from time to time that the, the J sound does, is not present in the Hebrew or the Aramaic language. So really it's more like Jairus. But Jairus just doesn't come off the tongue very easily. So we'll stick with it, at least Jairus and we'll sort of split the difference. So here's this man Jairus. We're told that his name is Jairus. In fact, Jairus by name. And one of the things that we perhaps has escaped our notice, you have to be paying close attention to see this, but Mark is not one to give names. In fact, Mark so rarely gives the names. If we were to remove all the personal names from Mark's gospel, if we were to remove all of the names of disciples and all the names that refer to Old Testament characters that are referenced in Mark's gospel, if we were to take all those proper names out, we would be left with only about half a dozen proper names in Mark's gospel. Mark is not one to give personal names. 
almost all the characters in Mark's gospel, aside from the disciples themselves, and again, Old Testament characters, almost all the characters in the gospel are nameless, but not Jairus. Jairus by name is his name. His status is he is the ruler of the synagogue. We're told one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, that doesn't mean that the synagogue in Capernaum had multiple rulers. Instead, it means that Jairus was one of a class of people that were rulers of the synagogue, meaning that every city in in the region that had enough practicing Jews in that area to have a synagogue, had a synagogue, and each synagogue had a ruler. And there was this class of people known as the rulers of the synagogue, of whom Jairus was one. So he was one of the rulers of the synagogue, which means that he was a person of great status. He was a person of position. He was a person of respect. He was a person of means. He was a person of influence. He was likely even a person of wealth. What was the ruler of the synagogue and what did they do and why did that make him so important? Well, the synagogue, it's hard for us in 21st century Western culture to really relate to the synagogue in ancient Judaism. But in the ancient Jewish culture, the synagogue represented something, if you could imagine with me, something akin to the rec center put together with the chamber of commerce, put together with the one local church. Imagine that there's one church, one Christian church in in, uh, the county. Put that together with the rec center. Put that together with the chamber of commerce. And that's pretty much what the synagogue was. The synagogue was so very central to the daily life of the Jew. It's hard to overestimate just how central the synagogue was. It was where much more than just teaching took place. It was where community life took place. It was where the community stayed connected. Well, with all those things going on, you have to have what? Somebody to organize it, right? Those things just don't organize themselves. So the ruler of the synagogue wasn't a teacher of the law, but the ruler of a synagogue was the organizer, the supervisor, the director of all the activities that took place at the synagogue. So the synagogue, remember, was not the temple. There's one temple, and that temple's in Jerusalem. But in each city that was, that was large enough that had enough Jews living in that city, there was this synagogue There was this central aspect of life, and the ruler of the synagogue would organize and would be in control of things like, for example, who taught at the synagogue, which rabbis were teaching at the synagogue, even what they were teaching. The ruler of the synagogue was in charge of the community activities, the civic activities. The ruler of the synagogue had much to say about the local life of the believing Jews in in whatever area in which that ruler of the synagogue was practicing the rulership of of that synagogue. So this made him a very influential person, very powerful person, a very respected person. Imagine probably maybe an equivalent today might be the mayor. The mayor, if the mayor also was the organizer of the local church and the local religious life, that would be something like the ruler of the synagogue. So this man was in charge of quite a bit of the day-to-day life of the people. And he is this ruler of the synagogue that we're told comes. And we're not only told what he does, but we're told his name because he has a name. I mean, everybody has a name, right? But he has a name, a metaphorical name, a reputation. He has a standing. He has a place in society. Jairus by name comes and seeing him, meaning seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. So notice what Mark wants us to see. Mark wants us to see the ruler of the synagogue falling at the feet 
of the son of a Jewish carpenter. In fact, many would say the illegitimate son of a Jewish carpenter. Mark wants you to see that. He wants you to see the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum falling at the feet of Jesus. In fact, three times in the story, we see this falling at the feet of Jesus. And notice who falls at Jesus' feet. All the whole spectrum of humanity falls at Jesus' feet throughout the story. We see the demonized Gentile man falling at Jesus' feet, as well as, of course, the demons falling at Jesus' feet. Then just a few sentences later, we see the most powerful and influential man in Capernaum falling at Jesus' feet. And then just a few moments, a few more sentences, we're going to see a woman whom it's not going to be lost on us that she is nameless falling at Jesus' feet. That covers the the full gamut of society, all of them falling at Jesus' feet, reminding us that this is the only acceptable way that anyone may come to Jesus and expect to receive saving faith, expect to receive saving grace. The only way that we may come to Him is in the manner that Jairus is coming, which is to say falling at His feet which is a demonstration of at least this. We, we might ask yourself, well, well what, what does Jairus bowing at Jesus' feet, what does that mean? Does it mean that he's acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God? No, it doesn't mean that. But at the very least, it means that Jairus is saying by his posture, you are the superior, I am the inferior. You are the giver, I'm the beggar. You are the master, I'm the student. At the very minimum, that's what it's saying, is this acknowledgement that you are the greater, I'm the lesser. I need from your hand something, and that's why I grovel at your feet. At the very minimum, it's saying this, and this is what Mark wants us to see, that this is the only way to come to Jesus. All three, in fact, all four stories, but really all three of these falling at Jesus' feet, all of them are an act of pure desperation in which the desperate one recognizes himself as the beggar and Jesus as the master, Jesus as the giver, Jesus as the bestower. Think of the demonized man falling at Jesus' feet. Okay, So there's this interplay, there's this mixture between the demons and what they're doing and the man. But for the man's part, the man is desperate for Jesus to act and to free him. Likewise, as we'll see throughout the story, Jairus is also very, very desperate. And additionally, the woman is also very, very desperate. Three acts of desperation. And notice how in each instance, the circumstances of their life have brought them to a place of desperation. And in that place of desperation, they fall at the master's feet. And that is showing us the only way that we may come to God. Out of a sense of desperation and despairing of self, mixed together with, we'll talk about this as we go, with a type of trust and a type of faith and a type of belief, those two things coming together, acknowledging you are the greater, I'm the lesser. That is the only acceptable way in which we may come to Jesus. So Jairus comes in such a way, Jairus by name, we're told, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, verse 23, and implored him earnestly. Same word. That's the fifth time we've, uh, fifth time, fourth or fifth time we've seen that word, which is sometimes translated begging or imploring him earnestly, vigorously beseeching him. He implores him earnestly, saying, 
My little daughter is at the point of death. Now, the previous story of such human misery as the demonized man, it's impossible for that story not to touch deeply into our hearts as we read that story. It's also impossible for this story not to touch our hearts as well. Because we can all relate with this, especially those who are of parent status in life. We can all relate to this. This man lived in a very different culture than ours. He uh, spoke a language different from ours. His skin was a different color than most of ours. His hair was a different texture than ours. His, his way of life was very different from ours. But there's at least one thing that all of us can connect with. This man is coming and saying, my precious little girl is at the end. That's literally, he uses this idiom that literally means at the end or, or she's nearly there. She's just about to step to the other side. My precious little girl is right there at that point. And all of us, no matter what culture, no matter what age we live in, no matter what part of the world we live in or what language we speak, we all can relate to just the desperation of that man saying, my little girl, my precious little girl. Now, it's one word here that, that means daughter, but the word here is added onto the end of it, what's, the, what's called the diminutive. Now, we don't have the diminutive in English, but most languages have the diminutive. So if you've ever studied another language, you're familiar with the diminutive. And that just means that you, you add a little a suffix onto the ending that takes the word and changes it to little something. Like if you add it onto the, to the end of chair, it becomes little chair. But if you add that on to the end of a person, of a word that refers to a person, it means not little person, but it means precious person. Dear, my precious little girl. Now, Luke tells us that this was his only daughter. We don't know if that means that was his only child or if it was his only girl child. But regardless, this, just the tenderness, it has, it's got to touch your heart that he comes in such desperation. We'll talk in just a few moments about what it must have taken for this man to come to this point, to come and throw himself at the feet of this Jewish carpenter. But all of us can plainly see what brought him there. You know, we can all have our pride and our status in life, and, and we can all say, well, that's beneath me, or this is beneath me. But sickness and death, when it touches a close family member, changes everything, doesn't it? 